Good morning, church. It is really good to be with you on this Sunday, this Lord's Day. In this sermon, I want to emphasize uh, two types of love. I'm calling them natural and unnatural love. And my aim, my purpose, my goal for you is to leave here today with a person in your mind, a name in your mind, and for you to have a desire to show unnatural love to that person, and that by God's grace, he would help you to do that. The reason that this is the subject is because we see someone in today's text expressing what I'm going to call unnatural love in today's sermon. So before uh, we get into the text, uh, let me tell you uh, what I mean by natural love. You already know what I'm talking about, but let me give you uh, some examples. There are some things or some places or some people who are just really easy to love, just natural. It, 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 It comes easy. One of those uh, places for me is, have I mentioned to you that I mountain bike? Um, on, the, on the east shore, on the Nevada side of Lake Tahoe, uh, there's a trail, uh, the Flume Trail. I've been there dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And you're about 1,500 feet above the lake, and on a clear day, you can see near the water's edge the bottom of the lake, the sand. You can see this emerald blue sky and the green forested trees and the granite, and it's just this explosion of of beauty, of transcendent beauty. You could drop anyone there, and and you're just going to be in awe, And, and it's just an easy, an easy place to love. A difficult place for me would be a place like New York City. Have you been there? They have uh, bumper stickers and t-shirts. I love New York. I take that as an aspirational thing. Like those, that's why they have them. We, we, we don't have bumper stickers. I love Lake Tahoe. It, it, it just happens. It's just natural uh, when, when, when you're up there and you see it. My point today is not though about uh, places or things. It's about people. And what I am talking to you right now, about right now is this natural kind of love that we have that is also true uh, uh, about people. My wife and I, just a couple days ago, we were at, uh, have I mentioned that I like bread? We were at the baker and the cake maker, this little bakery. And there was um, a 15-month-old. Uh, parents were there, but they you know, we're, let, let, this, let this little one loose. And he's just walking around like a greeter, like going table to table, just smiling. Just, you know, hasn't been walking that long. No words spoken. But he, he just filled the place with joy. This little one just walking around a little bakery. That's easy to love that child, at least in that moment. I didn't talk to the parents, but in that moment, that is a natural 
kind of love. So again, what I am after in this sermon is to show the difference between natural love and unnatural love. And, and why the latter, why unnatural love is better, it's superior to the former, to the natural loves that we have. And it's going to take a while. We're going to go through this text in just a moment, but then we're going to see three reasons that you should pray to unnaturally love a particular person in your life. We're going to see an example of this in today's text. Hopefully you still have your Bibles open to the passage that Jill read or your device open. Let's uh, turn our attention there. And we are in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel. And I'm going to begin in verse 1. But before I begin, let me just kind of set the stage in case you've forgotten or in case you're visiting what's going on here at this point in, in the history of ancient Israel. What's going on here is that there's been a coup or a civil war, or you could describe it a bunch of different ways, but we essentially have two kings. One king is on the run. It's the anointed king, David, the great king of Israel, anointed by God, but his son has taken possession of the palace. He's taken possession, if you will, of the will of the people. Most of the people are following David's evil son, Absalom. He's taken possession of the palace. He's taken possession of the city. And we have essentially a civil war or coup here. And there has been a decision made by Absalom what kind of battle to fight to take his father, the rightful and anointed king, out. And it's a large-scale warfare. And this is what is about to happen. And that's where we pick it up, this, this battle. Chapter 18 and verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent the troops out, a third under the command of Joab. Joab, remember, is his general. He's the overall commander of the army that has more or less been taken over by Absalom, but some of the men have stayed with David, including Joab. So a third under him, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruai, and a third under Ittai, the Gittite. And I've said this many times, but throughout the Old Testament, we especially have these phrases, so-and-so, the Gittite, so-and-so, the Moabite, so-and-so, the Archite. It's a reminder that there are faithful followers of Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, who are from outside of Israel. So, so one of the people who's a leader of the army is Ittai, the Gittite. Continuing in verse 2, the king told the troops, I myself, David, I myself will surely march out with you. David was a, a warrior. David was a man who was willing to risk his life. And he wanted to lead his troops. Verse 3, but the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care but you are worth 10,000 of us. In military terms, in political terms, if they get you, David, we're done. So no, no, you must not go out with us, his men are saying. This is interesting. We have a man telling the general, telling the king, telling the commander-in-chief, this is how it should be. They say it would be better now for you to give us support from the city. Look at David's response. In verse 4, 
I will do whatever seems best to you. David is wise. He's courageous. He wants to be with them, but he says, okay, I understand the situation. If, if they get me, and the readers knows that that was Ahithophel's advice, we don't need a large-scale battle, just go and get David. So Ahithophel knew that. David's men know that. David's got to be protected. So continuing in verse 4, so the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. And this sounds like a large number of people, and and it was. And then we have verse 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. This is David's heart. He says, be gentle with the young man Absalom. And then these words are important, for my sake. He's telling the leaders of his followers, his army, the minority army in this battle, the smaller army, he's telling them to care gently for the adversary, for the enemy, for the one who wants to kill David, who happens to be his son. Be gentle. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. Now, if you have not a great memory like me or you're visiting today, let me, try to, let me give you just a quick summary of Absalom's resume. The man that David is using, unnatural love, that Absalom is, is the opposite of the little boy in Baker and Cakemaker the other day who just walks around bringing joy to every table with his smile and, 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 and just delightful, delightful demeanor. Absalom is the opposite of that boy. But David is saying, be gentle with him. Describes him as a young man. His, his resume, so if we go back quite a few chapters... He killed the rightful heir to the throne, David's firstborn. Honor students, what what was his name? Amnon, thank you. We've got one honor student. Amnon. He killed the firstborn of David. Now, the careful reader of 2 Samuel at first is, is, is thinking, well, did he, you know, he did some, he did a bad thing. And so maybe Amnon was, was trying to bring justice to this situation. You might remember Amnon raped beautiful woman Tamar, his half-sister. And so the reader might be thinking, well, maybe, maybe he's, a, he's a good guy and he's, he's, he's done the wrong thing, but with a good motive to bring justice. I think the careful reader by this point will conclude that is not who Absalom is. Absalom is after power. He's after the palace. He's after authority. He'll do whatever it takes. So on his resume, he has murdered Amnon. Just recently, we saw that he has taken for himself David's wives or concubines, had essentially a wedding celebration, and he is now married to them. David should not have married them, but he did. And in the ancient world, the way that the new king shows the old king has no power or authority is to take his wives. 
This was against what God wanted, but it was common in the ancient Near East. And so on his resume, he has murdered Amnon. He has taken his father's wives as his own while his father is living. He is intent on murdering his father, and he is massively power-hungry and incredibly patient and strategic to become king. You might remember he waited two years to murder Amnon. Let me read again verse 5. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Intai, be gentle with the young man, Absalom, for my sake. That is an unnatural love. And as we read this text, we want to identify with the human beings in this text, in this case, David, and say, what is the mutual human condition that I share or would like to share with this human being? I would like the grace of God to be in my life so that there might be someone who doesn't deserve it, but who I unnaturally, radically love. This is what David is doing in verse 5. Let's come back to our text. So he gives this command, verse 6, the army marched into the field to fight Israel. So notice how the author, we don't know who wrote 2 Samuel, but how the author describes. So Israel, Absalom has Israel. Most of the people, the army, he's got it. So the army, David's army, marched into the field to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There, the army of Israel was defeated by David's men. So the small army defeats the large army. And the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. Verse 8, the battle spread out over the whole countryside. And here's this astonishing statement. The forest claimed more lives that day than the sword. That catches my attention. So you've got men fighting each other, hand-to-hand combat mostly. Some archers, some arrows, some javelins. But this is pretty close ancient combat. And in that context, massive scale war, the forest claimed more lives than the sword. One commentator writes this. He says, the dense forest of Ephraim, which by the way no longer exists, the earth looked very different 3,000 years ago, particularly the Middle East. So this forest is gone. This is an immense forest. The dense forest of Ephraim characterized by uneven and dangerous terrain, was a battleground where the numerically superior force of Absalom's conscript army, that is, draftees, would be at a disadvantage against David's more skilled private army with its considerable experience of guerrilla warfare. David's men, he's saying, the commentator, were, were mountain men. They were from Auburn and Forest Hill and Colfax, And they knew how to navigate the woods. But it isn't primarily that, I think, that is being said. When it says the forest claimed more lives that day than the sword, I believe what the text is telling us is that our sovereign God is accomplishing his purposes through the sinful acts of warfare of man. And he is going to restore the rightful king to the throne. 
the one who has been on the run. He has been on the run in more ways than one. He's been on the run in some ways cowardly instead of fighting and defending. He fled the palace, but more importantly, he's been on the run inside of himself. The biggest battles that you and I face, the biggest battles that David faces are inside of himself, and he has been miserable since late one afternoon when he was walking on the deck of his palace and saw Bathsheba bathing some ways away. So he, we're seeing a little of the old David here. Uh, the David who has prayed, the David who has sent a spy, his spy has accomplished his task. Absalom didn't listen to Ahithophel who had a good military plan. He followed uh, David's spy, that is um, Hushai the archite. We looked at that last week. Well, let's come back to our text. We're at verse 9, right? So, massive, massive defeat. The forest claimed more lives. Now, what happened to the king, the fake king, if you will, Absalom. Now, Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's head got caught in the tree. Now, head here is referring to his hair. There's a fancy term for this, synecdoche. This is a the Hebrew word head is what's in our text, but it's, it's referring to his hair. So his head got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding on kept going. This is an extraordinary event. Who is behind this event? And what is the reader to think of this? The careful reader of 2 Samuel, when they read of, day of Absalom being caught by his head in an oak tree, would think of this description back in chapter 14. In all Israel, this is a description of Absalom, in all Israel there was not a man so highly praised for his handsome appearance as Absalom. From the top of his head to the sole of his foot, there was no blemish in him. Whenever he cut the hair of his head... He used to cut his hair from time to time when it became too heavy for him. He would weigh it, and its weight was 200 shekels by the royal standard. Paraphrase, this was a prideful man, a good-looking man who cared about his hair. And his hair is caught in a tree, and he is hanging from a branch in the middle of a battle where the generals, the lieutenants, the captains, whatever, however we want to describe them, the leaders of the army were told to be gentle with him. And he's hanging in the tree. It is extraordinary what's going on here. One commentator says this, in God's providence, the source of Absalom's pride became the cause of his downfall. Another writes, the mule was a royal mount. Losing his mule, Absalom has lost his kingdom as he is hanging in a tree. Well, what do they do? Verse 10, when one of the men saw this, he told Joab, 
I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have had to give you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. You know, this was the reward when a soldier does a good thing. But the man replied, Even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lift my hand against the king's son. In our hearing, the king, King David, the anointed king of Israel, the real king, commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. Forget about Absalom. Think about David. And if I had put my life in jeopardy and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. I mean, this is a certain death. Three javelins, then ten guys. He's dead. Verse 16. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him in a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes, meaning the war is over. The king is established. Absalom is dead. David is reigning again. This is the reader's conclusion at this point. Verse 18, during his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself. This man is full of pride, for he thought, I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. His sons had also died. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's monument to this day. David is showing an incredibly unnatural love for Absalom. David is not only struggling to deal with his own sin of adultery and murder, but David is a man who has been grieving. Ever since late one afternoon when he saw Bathsheba, uh, he has lost a son Right after birth, you remember that? He has lost Amnon. Absalom killed him. And now Absalom was hung in a tree. And David's warriors, out of a motive for the nation of Israel, disregarded David's tender and unnatural love. And they take him out, thinking of the people. And Absalom is dead. And David is grieving. We have this passage in Scripture not for us to simply understand the story and the facts of it in ancient Israel's history. The Bible is given us to us to change our lives. And, and one of the many things we could take from this passage I'm suggesting is this radical, unnatural love that David has. And he has it not only for Absalom, but he, he's, we have seen it in his, life, in his life for other people that are extraordinarily difficult to love. So, 
In our last few minutes here, what I want to say, the message here is for you and for me to pray, to unnaturally love a, particularly, a particular person, somebody's name who's maybe already come to your mind, and maybe you're already in this process. David, one of the reasons that we should do this is that David, the man after our God's own heart, has modeled this kind of love for us, this unnatural kind of love. There are people that are extraordinarily easy to love, and we are blessed by them. That is not what this text is about. It's about loving in an unnatural way, and David has been doing this for some time with numerous people. We read of his description in Acts 13, David. It says, he, God, raised up David to be their king, concerning whom he also testified and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart. The NASB puts those words in caps, showing they're taken from the Old Testament. David is a man after God's own heart, who will do all my will. And a big part of God's heart and a big part of David's heart is loving people in unnatural ways, very difficult people. Not only Absalom, but he's also done this with Saul, who was trying to kill David. You might remember back in chapter 24 of 1 Samuel, he came to the sheepfolds on the way where there was a cave. And one of the fam most famous bathroom breaks in all of history, Saul goes in to relieve himself. Now David and his men were sitting in the inner recesses of the cave. Saul is trying to kill David. His men are like, oh my gosh, look at the providence of God. Get him. Take him out. God has anointed you king. Honor students, what, what did he do? Remember? Anybody? He cut a corner of his robe off without him knowing. And then David felt he was a man of a sensitive conscience. He felt guilty for cutting off the corner of the royal robe. He didn't take his life. He showed an unnatural love to Saul. David shows an unnatural love to Absalom. Two people who were trying to kill David. One commentator writes, David had not raised his hand against Saul, whom he regarded as the anointed of the Lord, but had taken every measure to deal graciously with Saul and with Saul's survivors. It's not just Saul, but Mephibosheth, the only one to survive. I want to bless Saul by blessing his posterity. Whereas the normal thing for a king to do is be to wipe out all the descendants of the previous king. That's how it, that's how it went in the ancient Near East. When King A was gone and King B took over, King B wiped out all the descendants of King A. But David did not do that. David was a man after God's own heart. And he is a model for us to unnaturally love people. His heart is very much like the heart of God at times, including in 2 Samuel 18. We read about the heart of God very specifically in the heart of Jesus, who was both God and man, where he says, I am gentle and humble in heart. For all of his cowardliness since 
2 Samuel 11.1, late one afternoon, for all of his internal struggles, for all of his inability to have heart-to-heart talks with his adult sons, David remains gentle and humble in heart. This is the heart of our Lord. In his Sermon on the Mount, our Lord says, Blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. David is showing us in verse 5 of 2 Samuel 18 what it means to be a man after God's own heart. Gentle and lowly and humble. Three reasons that you should pray to unnaturally love a particular person. David models it. God himself models it in his relationship with ancient Israel. We've looked at this several times. Exodus 32 The Lord said to Moses, go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it, and have sacrificed to it, and have said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I have seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. We are a stiff-necked people. Ancient Israel was a stiff-necked people. And God shows unnatural love to them. Deuteronomy 7, The Lord did not set his love on you, on you, ancient Israel, nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But because the Lord, Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God of Israel, loved you, loved you in an unnatural way and kept the oath which he swore to your forefathers. The Lord brought you out by a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God rescued a people who were being oppressed, not because they were special, not because they were smart, not because they were numerous, not because they were godly, but because he loved them. They were indeed stiff-necked. One commentator, I didn't get the quote up here, but he says that, that phrase, stiff-necked, is, a, is an animal term. There are animals that you use the reins or the, what, what, what's it called, the, the bridle, something like that, and, and, and they won't turn. They won't do what the farmer wants them to do. They're stiff-necked, the yoke, there it is, the yoke. They're stiff-necked. They won't do what they're supposed to do. That is the kind of people That God showed his love to. We are that kind of people. Three reasons that you should pray to unnaturally love a particular person. David modeled it. God models it. And then the son of David. Jesus, the Messiah, models it. I've already alluded to our Lord. But just briefly, you know, Jesus uh, did not give us in his word, a systematic theology book to teach us about love or to teach us about doctrine even. He didn't give us an engineered-like systematic theology. I, I'm for those. I, I have a bunch of them in my office. But Jesus has mostly given us stories, simple stories to communicate this unnatural love. And, and let me just allude to one of them that you're very familiar with. You don't need to turn there, but it's in Luke 15. 
It's the parable of the two lost sons. We only have time to talk about the younger son. And the reason I'm saying this is Jesus modeling it is because Jesus chose to tell this story to illustrate what God's love is like. He could have written a systematic theology book. He could have told another story. But he told this story where the father in this story with these two sons, the father in this story represents God the Father and God the Father's unnatural love, his radical love. You know the story well. The younger son comes to the father and says, Father, give me my share of the estate. Normally, the, the older son would get the share of estate, and it would normally happen when the father died. So, you know, let's use our imaginations today and, and say you're going into, some of you, I, some of you might have a, a financial advisor, someone that you pay who helps you figure out what to do with your money, or maybe you have a, a family and marriage counselor you go to, and you say, hey, I just want to run something by you. My younger son has asked for the inheritance now. Thanks for helping me draft the will and everything. He's asked for it now. Oh, really? Yeah, what's he going to do with it? Well, he's going to go to Vegas. He's, he's going to get some prostitutes. He's going to party, and he's asked for it now. Okay, yeah, give it to him. Give it to him. Can you imagine that council coming? So he divided his property between them. This is the story that Jesus chooses to tell so that we understand what the Father's love is like. He gives the younger son the inheritance, and he goes to Vegas. Then he squanders it all, and then he comes back. And when he comes back, you know the end of the story. The father slaughters the fattened calf. calf. He, he goes to cake maker and baker and gets the best bread. He says, hey, we're, we're having the best cater. We, we are having a party. He's back. So Jesus is modeling for us an unnatural, radical sort of love. It's in, in some ways irrational. It's supra-rational, it's supernatural, it's radical, it's unnatural. Don't have time to go through this all, but it, it is extraordinary when you think about this parable. The Father in this story represents God the Father and His love for stiff-necked people like you and me. And David has modeled this to us. One of my uh, dead heroes is uh, C.S. Lewis. We'll close, we'll let him have the final word today. I've, I've read his uh, last years of, of his life, I've read his letters that he's written. It took me several years to read them. They're extraordinary, extraordinary letters. He spent time every day writing letters to people. Most of pe many of these people, he does not know them. He wrote to a woman named uh, Mrs. Van Dusen, and this was in 1951. And from 1949 until Lewis's death, he died on the same day JFK did, November 22, 1963. He wrote to this woman 82 times. 
he, he's, he lives in England. She lives in the Smoky Mountains in North Carolina. She's reading his book. I'm guessing she's a Christian housewife. And she writes him a letter and, and mails it off to Oxford or Cambridge. And he writes her back 82 times. He's functioning in these letters like a pastor. Not the elder, the office of elder of a local church, but as someone who cares for the soul of another. Pastor with a small p. Something that we should all be doing. Caring for the souls of others. He writes to her, Mrs. Van Dusen, I'm not going to read you the whole letter, but the part that's relevant to today's text and today's message, it's worth reading the whole letter. This is what he says to her. He says, there are two kinds of love. We love wise and kind and beautiful people because we need them. We need them. I needed that little boy the other day, that cake maker and baker. Parents didn't know he needed them. I needed him. We need people that are wise and kind and beautiful in our lives. He goes on. But we love or try to love stupid and disagreeable people because they need us. Yeah, I don't think he would have published the word stupid. But when you're writing a friend that you've written 80 times, you speak with a certain level of candor. We, we love or try to love stupid and disagreeable people because they need us. The second kind is the more divine because that is how God loves us. Not because we are lovable, but because He is love. Not because He needs to receive but because he delights to give. God wants us to pray to have his grace to unnaturally love a particular person who is not wise, perhaps not beautiful, not helpful, but really important for us to love if we are going to be the kind of people that God wills us to be people like our Lord Jesus. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, Lord, it's so hard to love difficult people. It's very natural to love people that are beautiful and joyful and encouraging, and we're thankful for that. But today, I'm praying specifically for those of us here who have the names of someone in our minds who you would call us to love, who does not deserve it. It's actually almost outrageous, and we might even get criticism from a counselor or from a financial advisor to not do that. So God, we need your leading and wisdom in these kinds of situations. But what we are asking is that by your grace, you would make us each the kind of person who has an unnatural love, and that love, and that passion, and that joy, and that energy would come from you, God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.